Go ahead. So that's one thing that's been curious to me is like when it comes to this sort of like spiritual side of things, like I hear a lot that being childlike is good. But then we see that like the childlike form is more, you know, as you said, wild and barbaric and, you know, instinctual. So which part of it is good and which part of it is not good? Well, that's an actually an easy one to uh, uh, to determine, um, let us say philosophically, but a little bit more difficult to put in practice. And that would be. Uh, the issue that the, is the actual teaching of the Buddha, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And, and what we mean by that would be that uh, those natural barbarian uh, wild instincts that children are born with can be quite wholesome, but they can also be quite unwholesome. They can be unsatisfactory. They can be dangerous, in fact. And so what we need to teach the children is um, nurturing, how to be kind, how to uh, um, uh, get along with people. And what we teach them instead is, no, no, that's wrong. So in the very beginning, when a child is born, the job of the mother and some mothers are not very good at it. We can actually call this the mothering instinct, is to nurture the child, is to care for that child, uh, to give that child encouragement, to give the child uh, uh, toys to play with, to, uh, to help the child along. However, not all mothers stay nurturing. And that there comes a time in the life of the child when they move out of being nurturing into being critical. And that that critical time is actually when the parent sees the child as an extension of themselves. And so just like the adult is now going to, because he has been criticized, he winds up having a critical mind. And therefore, he's going to start being critical to his child. So we make a shift. Uh, the parenting makes a shift from nurturing the little child into being critical of the older child. And so that layer of criticism um, begins to influence our lives. Now, the reason for the criticism is because um, back at the level of wrong view that basically what wrong view is is that i can get away with it that's the quote i can get away with it now what that actually means is <clears throat> that the child knows that it's wrong he's been told that it's wrong sometimes he can see that what he's doing is wrong mm -hmm. but he does it anyway. Why? Because he thinks he can get away with it, that he can get the advantage of it without the disadvantage. When the parent sees the child acting this way, acting in the sense of getting away with it, the parent's job is to then come in and say, oh, no, you can't. You can't get away with it. 
I'm going to make sure that you can't get away with it, even if I have to take on the role of punishing you to make sure you don't get away with it. All right. But in fact, uh, this whole idea of critical versus nurturing uh, boils down to then the distinction between when someone has wrongdoing, are we either going to punish them or are we going to nurture them into rehabilitation? When I look at the prison systems in the United States, and you'll know how to answer that one. Ain't much rehabilitation going on in those prisons. No, they're all there to lock them up, to punish them, to make life hard, okay? Why? Because we gotta teach them a lesson that they can't get away with it. It sounds like you're describing uh, all these dichotomies of nurturing and criticizing and how you said earlier about give it something to play with, like, you know, like teach it like in that way. It sounds exactly like what's going on in the mind of the adult. Mm -hmm. Like Anapanasati almost in a, in a way with how you were describing it in the nurturing way. That's how the how we should practice. Right. So we start with the individual level and the individual's um, introduction to culture. And what we begin to see is we begin to see that as the groups of people grow larger, this culture becomes more ossified and more fixed. Now the Buddha um, puts right view, or let us say he, he uh, the way that we look at things, we could even call it a world view, but it's more even sophisticated than that. But that's the English language uh, definition for it, uh, or the word that's used. And this view the Buddha talks about is of three kinds. There is wrong view, and the wrong view is, is that, oh, well, mothers and fathers are not important, that priests are not important, that nothing is ever reborn. I'll get away with it. I can do anything I want to, and I can get away with it. This, in fact, is barbarianism. This is it. It's uh, it's uh, drive-by shooting, it is um, uh, robbery, it is the whole uh, thing of anything I want, I'll just take it because I can get away with it. And we can see this culture got started with that mentality. And so uh, we want to kind of bring some rules into it. And so the basic rule that we have in every society, uh, the basis of all culture, is that basis of you can't get away with it. And it's expressed in many, many different ways. One of the ways that it's expressed is in what is called um, uh, the law of karma, which means that if you do good action, you'll get good results, and if you do bad action, you'll get bad results. Any kid can see that that's not the case. I can go and do bad, but if I do it well, if I do it good enough, if I do it secretly enough, if I do it um, uh, in some way, I can get away with it. That's been historical all throughout time. But in fact, any child knows that the, that the rules um, only apply in a spotty kind of way. 
And so sometimes we can get away with it and sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. But that's still not good enough, especially not for those who are trying to make a perfect society. So they then come to the point of saying, no, you can't get away with it no matter what. Eventually, you will have to pay for your bad behavior. You ever heard that? Isn't that the basis of Christianity completely? Yeah, Yeah. that's the basis of that's the basis of religion is is that you can't get away with it. You will eventually get caught, even if you're dead, even if you're dead for centuries, the common machine will dig you up just to kick your ass. Yep. This is how right, ordinary right view is considered. So the wrong view is the view of I can get away with it. But nobody really knows the future anyway. An ordinary right view is is that, oh, no, you can't get away with it. Now, this is actually coming out of Sutta number 117 uh, uh, called the Great Forty. And what what is actually uh, this teaching is about is to show the dichotomy in culture between uh, or actually within each one of the ordinary people that each individual one of us will swift back and forth between wrong view and ordinary right view. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you think you can get away with it, sometimes you don't. This leads to confusion and other things like that. But the Buddha teaches uh, what we call noble right view. And the noble right view is basically based on investigation. That in fact, one's noble right view is to look at what's going on, to look at what you're doing, as opposed to what we normally think of as a view or a world view, is something that we've accumulated over time and that it has a lot of past stuff in it. So, so noble right view is about what's happening right now to investigate, to look at what's going on, to use your faculty of wisdom. This is the way that we look at right view that is a noble right view. But ordinary right view actually has magic built into it. What is the magic? The magic says is that you can't get away with it. And that ultimately that magic is the you that can't get away with it. This gives an idea that eventually the person who or the thing or the individual or whatever that did the crime will eventually have to pay for it. Which means a continuity. It's the same person, you see. It's got a fallacy in it. A noble right view will show that what happened as uh, you were growing up or what happened as a child, you're not the same person as you were then. Nothing about you has changed, uh, uh, is the same. All the molecules in the body have changed. All, every drop of water 
is a different drop of water. All the water that you drink doesn't just throw through and all the water that's in the body just stays in the body. Oh no, all of that stuff is circulated. Everything changes. Even the cells, they say that it takes about seven years for a complete cycle. And in seven years, you are nothing of the same. Not one molecule, not one cell, nothing. Now, in the really old days, they used to think that uh, the human brain was fully developed by the age of five and didn't grow anymore. Boy, were they wrong. That neurons die and are reborn, or not reborn, but are, uh, let us say, uh, regerminated um, all throughout life which gives us the, uh, um, an actually, uh, it's a benefit. Most people, when they recognize that things are constantly in turmoil, they're constantly in flux, and that things are, uh, are subject to loss, constantly being lost, constantly losing things. But we want to hold material possessions because in the original idea of holding possessions, was because we use them as as weapons or as defense tools. That possibly the very, very first item that the human uh, picked up and carried along with him was either a stick that was on fire or a particular rock that was really sharp or something so that it had a very good value. Now, uh, great apes, in fact, many, many animals use tools. We even know that otters use tools. You know what an otter is? Yeah, like the okay. water animal? Yeah, it's a water animal. And so what the otter does is he goes into the deep dive and he gets two items. He gets a rock and he gets a shellfish. He gets a clam. And what he does is he swims back up to the surface and he puts that shellfish on his tummy and he uses that rock to break it open. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that before, no. That is so marvelous to watch the otter because they're using a tool. They're just an ordinary mammal. They're nothing special, no brain about them. But one of the things that makes the otter different than the human with that tool is when the otter finishes with that tool, he just lets it sink to the bottom. He doesn't keep it. What humans do is, is that if we, uh, because of the kinds of hands that we have or whatever, that when we use the rock to break open a bone to get the marrow out of it that was left by the predators, some, some human had the idea, I'm going to keep this rock. A little while later, the next human along the line of rock keepers ties a stick to the rock. And now we've got an axe, and we carry that axe around. And now, uh, in modern times, the cell phone is our axe, and we carry it around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got so, my cell phone in my hand a lot. Ah, so you can see that. How would you feel if it suddenly just disappeared and you don't know where it was? Spent some, spent a lot of time and energy looking for it. Why? So I could play some Domorado videos. <laughs> Pardon? So I could play some, some of your videos, probably. That's why. 
No, that's missing the point. The point is, is that you're looking for that cell phone because you miss it, you want it, and you feel bad without it. Yeah. So it's a matter of feelings. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have any feeling about the phone, let us say that the phone that you lost was last year's phone or a phone that was three years old. That doesn't mean anything to you anymore because you've got a replacement, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you lose the new cell phone, you can just pick up the old cell phone and continue along. So it's got nothing to do with the cell phone itself. It's the feeling of the loss that we have of losing something. Well, if we never kept anything, I mean, the otter is not going to feel bad because he lost that rock. So humans actually create an additional reason to feel bad, to feel in danger, to where in fact the otter, he doesn't feel bad or uh, feel in danger because he's lost his rock. But the human will feel bad and feel in great danger because they've lost their cell phone. This is what we mean by then attachment. Okay. The, but uh, actually, the word attachment um, has um, interesting connotations to it. Uh, we could also uh, use other words like addictions, because an attachment and an addiction are very similar. That we're addicted to our cell phones, we're attached to them uh, uh, because we feel really bad without it this is um let us say the way that the instincts of the human have been modified by culture for instance you could live in a culture let's just give an example of 18th century uh england you can get in uh, you can live in that culture just fine without a cell phone So the cell phone is a cultural item that we confuse with a natural item in the sense that we feel danger because we're missing it. So why do you when, why do you think uh, why do you think that is? Is it maybe because like everyone has a cell phone, so I need to have one? Is that maybe a, a part of it? Or I mean, you know, it's part of your like if you need it for your job, you said like it's part of your livelihood in a way. Um, we can go down that rabbit hole in the sense of um, down at, let us say, at least two thirds down that rabbit hole comes to the, um, the statement of if you don't work, you don't eat. Right, somewhere down in there, but that's cultural, because you, if you use your wisdom eye and think about it, there are all kinds of circumstances where people do eat, and they don't work, and there are also plenty of other examples where people do work, and they don't eat. So that adage of you don't work, you don't eat is not true. It's not true in both directions. But you or let us say Western culture is so ingrained into that, that we have spent, let us say from the age of six in the first grade, 
learning simple words, learning ABCs, learning one, two, threes, and all of that. And when you finish with first grade, you get a second grade. That's your reward. And when you finish with second grade, third grade, your reward, etc. And all of that is designed for getting you ready for the world, so they say. And yet, when, uh, let us say, 150, 200 years ago, the universities that did exist at that time existed for the intentions of education. Now people go to universities for the intention of getting a job. Right? So it's not a pleasurable experience. Even the schools of universities is you got to do it. You got to have a job. You got to work. You got to eat. All right. And so they put uh, each individual one of us puts that kind of pressure on ourselves because of, of culture. But there are other ways of living. There are much more natural ways of living rather than get caught up in that uh, that worldly, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. And not only that, but that whole idea of you've got to do it is that critical, not the nurturing. Um, the nurturing way of saying it is, wow, wouldn't you like to have that? Wouldn't you like to go and, and um, have... Wouldn't you like to have a job that is say in that language where you can go and, and do the things that you like to do? But very few people of us uh, allow that because we already have the idea that work is hard, that work is something that you do because you don't like it. That's the word work is built into that. Is that it's something that you got to do that you don't like to do. Yeah. So what about you know, from that perspective, you know, I could say that for myself. I mean, that resonates with me a lot. My current job, um, you know, let's say you're looking at something that maybe you you would really enjoy, um, but you're doing a, a certain job at the moment. Isn't that isn't that suffering in a way when you're looking at something that you don't have in that way? Like you want this other job? Yes. And if you really looked at what you're doing, you can look at it from various perspectives. But one one of the ways that most people do it is, is that they do the job because they have to, because they're supposed to, because there, there is a rule in their own mind. And perhaps that rule can be stated as you don't work, you don't eat. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we live our lives rule based and that rule system is not a ruling system coming from nurturing parents. It comes from critical parents. This is what all the rules are. Rights, rules, rituals, shoulds, the way that we deal in community. Um, and that uh, while we have now this society that's based upon ordinary right view, it keeps us from living uh, a tragic barbarian, uh, uh, literally winner takes all because he kills his opponent, which is, which is actually, uh, let us say, the deep nature, 
the deep nature is uh, uh, from Darwinism the concept of survival of the fittest. But we have to understand what the word fittest means. That uh, when it's two lions, two male lions who are having a, a tussle over who gets to run the pride, generally the lion who has the thickest mane will win. Why is that? He may not be the fittest. He may not be able to run as fast as the other male lions. He may not be quite as big as the other male lions. But he has a survival uh, technique. Why? Because when lions take down a gazelle, where do they go? They go for the jugular. All right? So that's why the lion has such a big mane is that makes the, the jugular really hard to go to because of all of that hair, all of that mane in place. And it really is funny that female lions don't have that mane. Why is that? Mm-hmm. It's because they don't tussle with each other over running the pride. This is something that the males do. And so this is the distinction of why males have gotten in some species, the male gets bigger than the female. That's true in uh, basically the the later or the higher animals. Um, Male lions are like that. Humans are like that. Uh, Great apes are like that. Gorillas are like that. Um, That there's physiological differences in the animals uh, because of this issue of uh, survival. And so they develop uh, skills, but they're not skills really. They're just adaptations that you can see it genetically in the sense of male lions who don't have a big mane generally get eat, uh, get killed. And those who have a big mane will stay and survive. For that reason, then, male lions tend to have really big manes. Very simple about that. I mean, this is just natural selection. But... At, uh, uh, when we talk about a survival of the fittest, we have to understand that fitness doesn't necessarily mean a very limited set of uh, things, that it can be a really broad, like the, the size of the mane on the uh, uh, lion is an example. So when, when we realize that we live, in an, we live in a primitive society that's in the process of coming out of primitive, that we're actually putting on a set of rules for our culture so that humans can kind of survive and kind of get along with each other. And our culture kind of works. For instance, it's kind of not dangerous. Yeah. Look around and you're in your house right now. You don't have any uh, gorillas. You don't have any pythons or uh, uh, crocodiles crawling up your leg or anything like that. But if you were living in a swamp, that swamp might be dangerous. So whatever our culture has done is is it's taken the human out of the swamp, put him in a house, and he still feels like it's dangerous. Haven't given up that old, old cultural thing. We've taken the boy out of the, uh, um, the country out of the swamp, out of the danger, but we can't take the country out of the boy. Have you ever heard that statement? 
you can take the man, uh, the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Well, that's not necessarily true. You can take him out of the country really quickly, but it takes a while to take the country out of the boy. It takes a while that in some of us, we live in a swamp mentally our whole lives, thinking that everything is dangerous. Where in fact, things are not dangerous. And so noble right view is to look around your house and say, you know, things are not dangerous right now. The yeah. roof is not leaking. The room is not full of, of uh, 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 mold. So there's, you know, cro no crocodile. Why is it that we feel not safe? Why is it? Why is it that? And, and in Chicago, people go around feeling not safe a lot. And because they're, they feel not safe, they feel like that they have to protect themselves. And because a whole lot of people, this guy feels like he's got to protect himself, and this guy's got to feel like he's got to protect himself, and when they come together, what are they going to do? <laughs> they're going to protect themselves from that other guy. And that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of violence in Chicago is because there's a lot of fear there. People who are, are trusting and fearless, they generally don't have too much trouble with life. So a lot of what the teachings of the Buddha is really about is learning how to live fearlessly. And we can do that by understanding, hey, things are not dangerous. And we can wake up and remind ourselves that on a regular basis. That's part of the Anapanasati practice is to really understand by looking closely at how we feel and recognize that often how we feel is really inappropriate for the moment. That we feel like um, that we, there's something wrong. There's something rotten. There's something that needs to be fixed and we can't quite figure out what it is. But our culture has told us that, oh, this culture is rich. It's got many aspects. There's many things that we can go and do so we can find something in the culture then to fix us. And so we go around and we look at um, for help. I mean, when we were little kids and, and we were at that nurturing stage when we were really little, there was mom there to take care of us. She helped us. Now that we're adults, we feel that same need for nurturing. We feel that same need for care. And so we go out looking for helpers. One of the places where people wind up looking for help is in religion. Oh, come to Jesus. Jesus is going to save you from your sins, right? Yeah. Quite a delicious story that they tell to get you to come and join their group. But in fact, if you look at Christianity, especially the leaders, you will see that they, in fact, do not live the life that they claim that you can have if you join their club. That the best that you'll do is behave like them. And they're not still, they're not yet free from fear. They're not yet free from anger or hostility. The payoff is not very apparent. 
Right. And so um, we have to find other ways because basically what's going on is, is that the real issues with the human being is what's happening inside the mind. And no one, no neurosurgeon can take a scalpel or an electric probe or anything like that to fix the inside of the mind. And what we try to do instead is try to fix the behavior because the behavior is apparent. So we can see our own behavior, we can see other people's behavior, we know what is wholesome and not wholesome, and we can do that. And so the whole idea of the critical is that, well, we can't fix the real problem, but let's fix the surface of it. Let's fix the apparent part. Let's fix the behavior, because we don't even know how to fix the internal part. And so this is also built into culture. And look how many self-help books have come around. Look how, in fact, look at all the industries that have to do with this issue. An example of it is, is that people who attach to the body and think I am beautiful if the body is beautiful, they're the ones who are subject to fashion shows or makeup or uh, wigs and all the kind of things that they put on the body to try to make the body look better because they've been confused, I am the body. Mm-hmm. Body is beautiful, I am beautiful. And there is a lot of business and other things that cater to this. I mean, you can think of it, in fact, that this is much of the job of the medical profession. You'd think that the biggest job or the most important job is um, to take care of the really, truly ill and to help them get well again. But oh no, most medicals find out that almost all of the work that they have to do is what you could call either uh, cosmetic or uh, a more appropriate word would be um, uh, hypochondria. Mm. Yeah, people right. worrying. And the doctors like it. They want you to come. The dentists want you to come so that they can clean your teeth every six months. Mm-hmm. That's part of their profession and more and more and more and more. So you can see that much of the business world, like you saw the, uh, uh, the century of the self, that's what has happened to the Western in the, and it's own is happened in about just over a hundred years or so that you did see that the important point was, uh, that, um, Edward Bernays was actually a nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he mm-hmm. learned a lot about psychology from Sigmund Freud, but he didn't learn it as a self-help thing. He learned it as industrial psychology, how business can manipulate their employees and their customers so that they can make more money. Mm-hmm. In other words, things really went south about a hundred years ago. Yeah, and so I feel like a lot of what you were describing, especially with the body and the sort of the feeling of safety and these different things we could could we say that you know it's kind of based in like the delusion of 
um, like the the aggregates that you know you're you're thinking that you are this body, mm -hmm. you know, and therefore there's that preservation instinct, and right. there's these rules to abide by. Otherwise, this body could get locked up and all these different things like that. <laughs> all right. So the whole teaching of the Buddha is how can we fix this interior world given that we don't really have um, any method of doing it externally? That this is something that in fact developed over time internally and it has to be redeveloped over time internally. And so this is what the actual practice then of Anapanasati or the practice of the Buddha. And basically what we can uh, say, um, though a lot of people don't like this word, we can say that the entire teaching of the Buddha, the entire practice is learning uh, restraint. To learn to restrain ourselves, to hold back, to mm. not allow our more dangerous forces to exert themselves. Really? I haven't heard that one before. Well, it's actually a major part of the teachings in the suttas that the, the word restraint in English is used quite often. Hmm. Can you explain uh, that more? Well, uh, in the original uh, childhood, let us say it like this. In Thailand, uh, little children are given a set of rules, and, they, and these rules are quite Buddhist-oriented in the sense that it's like the five precepts. The children will do the five precepts at school, even. They do it certainly when they go to the temple, and that they do it in Pali, and then it's all explained in English and everything, and everybody knows the rules. Okay, so the, for little children, the first start in restraint is by learning to follow the rules. Whether you like it or not is the problem. Because we don't like following the rules. We don't get what we want if we can't steal. And so we want to steal. We want to take things that are not given. But our, the rule systems that we lay down for children is because the children have no wisdom on their own that luckily or hopefully when we get uh, to be an adult, we can see that if I steal that, I may be able to get away with it by getting what I want, but I won't get away with it because of the way that I feel. This is why it's talked about in the sense of, of taking things that are not given. Um, Here's an example of that. Um, this happened uh, recently this year. Um, the replacement of a laptop. And so I get a laptop off of eBay. And um, uh, it's for some reason, it's got some features to it that uh, were understood to be there and they're not there. For instance, almost all laptops have a camera. This one didn't have a camera. It's not even installed. Mm -hmm. well, cameras are pretty cheap, but it didn't have one. So I complained about it at, with, with eBay to work it out with the guy. 
and he was too slow to work it out. And so eBay sent the entire amount of money back for the um, for the laptop. All right. Now, some people could think, oh, well, I got that money because it was given to me by the, by eBay. But really, uh-huh. it was not eBay that gave the money because they're going to take it from this guy. And he doesn't want that. So I wrote him back to tell him, and I just use ordinary languages to tell him that because I'm an honorable man, I will go ahead and send money to you. So I, I took out the part that I thought that the, uh, uh, that the camera and the, other, the extra hard drive that didn't have was worth and sent him the money, which was, um, let us say, less than $100. Uh, knocked off of the price of the $400, you know, $500 laptop is now $400 basically. And I sent him the $400 and he was overjoyed. He did not expect to get that. Now, when I'm telling you this story, I recognize that if I had kept that money, I would not have enjoyed it nearly as much as I enjoy telling you the story about it. Mm-hmm. That in fact, we feel good because we have honesty and that we feel bad if I had ripped him off and just kept his money. Then I would have remembered that and not liked it and not enjoyed the laptop so much. So I suppose that it is I see where the restraint is, but at the same time, it's coming through the wisdom of seeing, you know, looking and seeing like I'm not going to feel good about this um yeah and, and so i was going to say like and in other cases you could say that when you become satisfied like you don't do wrong things so the restraint comes through the satisfaction yes that's the appropriate way right so it's actually a matter of attitude of how are we going to apply the restraint? Because when we're really little kids, we are restrained because of the possibility of punishment. And so we try to get around that restraint and get around the punishment with the idea I can get away with it. Right? Well, in fact, I could have gotten away with that with that laptop. Mm-hmm. Except that with wisdom, I recognized, oh, no, I don't get away with it. But I have to deal with myself and my own dishonesty if I yeah. don't pay for it. So there's, this there's is, also the, the opportunity cost sort of right of joy in that situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would say. Exactly. So that <clears throat> the guy that I paid the laptop money to he was joyful he was grateful he really liked it he and i had a good conversation back and forth in emails yeah Mm -hmm. and so spreading joy that way this is um a part of the gratitude so this is a new way of looking at the world that now our restraints are done because they're wholesome and beneficial so that we're actually restraining ourselves from unwholesome things. But in the beginning, the children are not wise enough to know the wisdom. And so we just merely give them a set of rules instead. And the only wisdom we allow them is, is that I'm going to beat your butt if you don't do what I tell you to do. Yeah. 
I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about uh, my work and how it applies to that. Uh huh. In terms of producing the best product that you can, because you know, I mean, there's the you could go off of the fear of like losing your job, mm -hmm. something like that. You don't work, you don't eat, right? Right. Or, or you could look at it like I'm gonna make them very happy with this product. Mm. You know, with my yes. work. And you actually, the intention intention would to be to to um, you could use it this way in the sense of a pride of workmanship. Uh, you know you're doing a good job. You enjoy doing a good job. You know how to do a good job. And the external benefit would be that and someone else appreciates that you're doing a good job and everybody's happy. As opposed to, oh, I don't like this job. I don't like this work. I've got to do it um, <clears throat> and I'm going to do it. And uh, so long yeah. as it's satisfactory, I'll just get away with doing it satisfactory. And now nobody's particularly happy. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're understanding that the idea of restraint is not to restrain ourselves from um, doing things that are wholesome and pleasurable, but rather that we're restraining ourselves from doing things that are harmful. And that way we can say that, oh, all right, if that's the way that we're going to do it, then let's try some restraint. Let's try holding back that we're not. Uh, um, uh, we're going to look at things more closely. Uh, the kid who is in this um, in Walmart about to uh, shoplift, he thinks that he wants this. He needs it. He might have thoughts about, well, Walmart charges too much for this product anyway. And they're not going to miss it, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but still, <coughs> even if the child gets away with it and gets out of the store, he still hasn't gotten away from his feelings, the feelings of fear of getting caught. Mm -hmm. Now, a better way of looking at it would be for the child to have the restraint and say, you know something, I really don't need this. And I can do without it. And so I can put this thing back on the shelf and walk out of here free without feeling um, that the man's coming. And so we learn to live then. So this restraint then helps us to deal with culturalized fear. Now, this fear is actually instinctual. Fear comes out of the self-preservation instinct. And when things are actually dangerous, there's a good reason for fear. But most of the fear that we have comes from the mind, fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of getting caught, to where in fact we've already got the wrong attitude. I can get away with it, where in fact I can't. That I'm going to bring up my feelings of fear and anxiety and tension and, and all of that while I'm in the process of doing the bad deed. So we get the idea that we're going to restrain ourselves. Once we do that, now we can recognize that the practice itself of Anapanasati um, 
is now looked at um, something to be an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Normally, people will see Anapanasati and the practice of meditation and what the Buddha is uh, teaching as sort of a work or a job to be done where I will get my reward for it sometime in the future. In other words, we look at the Buddha Dhamma in exactly the same way we look at culture. Delayed gratification. And as you mentioned about the draft animal, guess what? The graft animal don't get the reward. He just is put to work and he works and that's all he knows. Okay. And so we live our lives that way. And that's how many people start practicing Anapanasati, like the draft animal, doing what they're told to do, hoping to get some reward in the yeah. future. All right. To where the real point and, and the, uh, uh, actually, possibly the most important thing to bring this up is to look at what the Buddha himself called himself, how he referred to himself. He did not refer to himself as Buddha. He did not refer to himself as Bhagawa. The word Bhagawa, by, by the way, um, um, it actually means lucky or fortunate. And so also this, the same word of Arahat means one who is lucky or fortunate, or let us say one who is fortunate in their restraint. But the Buddha didn't call himself any of these kind of words that have become very common in, in English. What did he call himself? He called himself Tathagatha. Do you know what the word Tathagatha means? Yeah. It means uh, the, the thus gone one or the one that's here now. I have heard it like that before. Thus gone one is uh, an English translation of the actual word with the pieces in it. And I could not come up with a worse definition than that. Yeah. It is actually ancient English. The word thus actually means really this. Or thus, this is it. This is here. It's actually talking about the here now, this. And um, uh, the the ending, um, Tathaga, uh, the word ga here actually is the word to go, but it's in uh, uh, the male gender. Uh, so the one who goes to right now, or the one who is actually come and go, we could say the one who has come to the present moment. That's what the restraint then is, is the restraint of staying out of the past and out of the future and out of that place over there and away from over yonder and, and finished with that stuff. And we come to this present moment. This, this yes. is it. This is what the teaching of the Buddha is all about. And guess what? This present moment, look around your room. This present moment is actually quite safe. There are no people there handing you documents to sign. There's no one there that's trying to take your money. There is no one there trying to get you to do something. There is no one there except what's in your own mind. And many people will spend their here now 
thinking that they've got to sign something, thinking that they've got to do something, and they're uh, mulling all of that over to where, in fact, right now, you're free. So if you if you start uh, restraining yourself from all of the past and all the future and all of this and that and, and not not all of this, rather, but all of that and the other thing and come down to just this by restraining ourselves into this present moment is actually quite joyful. This present moment is wonderful if we allow it to be. I think I'm going to start practicing that again right now. Just restrain as much as you can remember, right? Exactly. So this is where Anapanasati comes in, 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 the, um, in the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, the Eightfold Noble Path actually starts from the very, very beginning. Um, uh, in Sutta number 22, in the simile of the snake, uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha says that both formally and now, I teach only one thing. What is it that the Buddha teaches? Only one thing. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's all he teaches, okay? And what that means is, is to see the Dukkha and to get out of it immediately, right then and there. But a lot of Western mentality with the idea of the uh, draft animal, they think, oh, dukkha, 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 dukkha. There's got to be some escape from dukkha someplace. Let me investigate dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. And they wind up just having dukkha. They know that dukkha naroda is going to be there someday. But yeah. the question is, how can you find that dukkha naroda right now? That's it. Can you come to this right now? This moment is good enough. So when we unpack Dukkha Dukkha Naroda, we actually unpack it into the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha and its cause, and Dukkha Naroda, and how to get there. That's the Eightfold Noble Path. But most of the teachings, the most of the teaching time of the Buddha, has to do with the Second Noble Truth that there is, uh, of, in all of the suttas and all of the stuff, I would say that in detail, uh, though not specifying it, that the second noble truth makes up about 80% of the entire teaching. In other words, if we can see where this stuff comes from, then it's naturally easy for us to get out of it. And so uh, the bulk of the teaching is to understand where this suffering comes from. And so over the course of the time and the videos that you've watched, we will actually be discussing mostly this four noble truths and uh, how suffering occurs. But the important point is the third noble truth, and that is learning to experience and find out for yourself through your own investigation that at least right now, in this particular moment, no suffering. I've got the reward right now. I don't have to wait off into the future that I can feel good and mm -hmm. feel content and feel happy and feel uh, joyful right now.
I have a few questions for you on that. All right. Go ahead. So when I'm in my practice, um, I would say like kind of, uh, you know, one thing is that I don't know to what degree, because I, I, from my understanding, the jhana is where you're free of the hindrances. Mm-hmm. And I find that when I'm sitting down, if it's even for 10 minutes, I can get to a place where there's not really any hindrances. So is that just considered jhana right there? Well, the freedom from the hindrances sets the stage. Without the freedom of the hindrances, there's no place to go because we are stuck in the hindrances. And so learning to identify the hindrances, which is actually then part of the second noble truth of understanding of what a hindrance is and why and how is a hindrance, Mm-hmm. is actually much of the educational process that the student goes through. Because in the beginning, they can uh, have sort of a uh, beginner's luck. Everybody has beginner's luck. Um, but then what happens is over time, they'll run across something new they think is new. And... In fact, it's just the same old thing, and we deal with it in the same old way, but it has the appearance that this is something that's new. No, it's just another hindrance. And so there's various ways to deal with the various hindrances, but the important point is is that we can't get anywhere when we're in the present moment when we're carrying that baggage. Mm. And so... Getting rid of the hindrances is the very, very first thing that we need to do. And that we can do that instantly. That in fact, um, it's, um, there's an important sutta, I don't know if you've seen the, the video on it, about that there are five ways for someone to enter the first jhana. And only the last one, the last resort, is what we would call this formal meditation and sitting practice. Mm. Why is that? Well, because in the normal formal way of sitting practice, especially the way that it's been developed in the, in the West, the student is automatically going to be in hindrance because that's the normal state that his mind is in. And so when he sits down to meditate, he's going to sit down in hindrance. And so he's got to clean them out. To where right now the example is because we're talking about the Dhamma, that you're paying attention to the Dhamma, you're listening to the Dhamma, and the Dhamma is wholesome. This is the time when right now your mind is not in hindrance. And I know because you're nodding your head and you're smiling. I can tell. Not in hindrance. No hindrance here. Right. No (laughs) hindrances there. That's right. There's no hindrances right this very moment. So... This is the way that we begin to, uh, to understand that when we're in this present moment, we're free from the hindrances. And that in Anapanasati, we want to gladden the mind, which is the part that brings us out of hindrances. That when that hindering thought, and, and the Buddha called it Mara. He says, ah, I see you, Mara. But when I see the hindrance, what that means is, is that now we've made a subtle shift. 
I'm not, uh, instead of being stuck in the hindrance and being hindered by the hindrances, uh -huh, I see it now as a hindrance. Mm -hmm. That subtle shift is now in the mind that I can see the hindrance and recognize that I am not now in that hindrance. Aha, uh -huh, I see you, Myra. This is the step of Anapanasati that we refer to as gladdening the mind. Aha, uh -huh, I see you. Yeah. Now, most students, when they uh, uh, have the hindrance and they see the hindrance, they say, oh, no, hindrances have come back. Well, now, that's a hindrance right there. The oh, no, hindrances are back is just another hindrance. Exactly. But, aha, I see you, hindrance. Now we can come out of it. Glad in the mind. Mm -hmm. The glad now, in the mind. That, that that leads into my next question. It was going to be about gladdening the mind, because in the true, um, in the mind illuminated system, sort of the goal after you know his stage three or stage four is that you kind of want to quiet the mind down and not think as much or not have as much verbalization or narration, you know, play by play on the field going on. But I noticed that you recommend, and I actually really liked going in and, and saying certain things like this is a, like this breath, this in breath is amazing. Or I like to say, um, I'm being the person I want to be on the in breath. And then I really like being this way on the out breath to try and control the thoughts. And mm -hmm. I, that resonates with me more from the perspective of waking up. Uh oh, lost you for a second there. We're, we're waking up the the reptile mind, or we're, we're waking up the prefrontal cortex by taking control right, of it. We're waking up this part, the frontal cortex, the uh, human part of the brain. The reptilian right. brain is always working. Yeah, waking up the human part of the brain by thinking those positive thoughts because it wants to, maybe wants to, you know, I guess, I don't know, like, so... But at a certain, at, a, at another level, I know you also say, you know, we go deeper come, and come to the point where we can control the feelings. So yes. we, we don't necessarily, is that the point where you no longer need to do the thinking, but you can do the invoking the feeling? And I do find that I can do that sometimes purely, but if I need to maybe go back, take a step back and like maybe involve thoughts, so sort of using it when it can be helpful or like when, when you feel like you need like an extra boost, you can bring the thoughts in and say like really good things. And if you could ride off of just like invoking the good feeling, you could go with the feeling. Is that how you look at it? Well, let us talk about it this way. And that is, is that there are several stages in the development practice. And we'll use the development practice here in the sense of control, which is actually the same thing as the restraint that we've been talking about. Mm. That actually what you want to do is restrain the breath from its normal, shallow, light, ordinary breathing that is sufficient for the reptilian brain. And we want to learn to control the breath. If you cannot learn to control your breath, you will not learn to control and restrain the mind. And if you cannot learn to control and restrain the mind, then you're not going to be able to control and restrain the feelings. But in fact, 
the uh, the process is something like this: that we use the mind and exercise the mind in control of the breath. But by being able to control the breath, we also are controlling the mind. The same thing is with the feelings. That once we learn to control the mind, now we learn to control the feelings. But we learn to control the feelings again with the mind. So the first thing is to learn to control the breathing. Second is to learn to control the mind, and the third is to learn to control the feelings. Okay. And most people are completely out of control with their feelings. Anybody, everyone can take a deep breath. That's the easy part. But coming right out of anger into joy takes, wow, that's that's real restraint. <laughs> that's real control is to come right out of bad feelings into good feelings. And so the better way of doing it is to practice uh, to develop this as a skill. It is kind of like a muscle that I actually talk about. The practice of Anapanasati is like going to the gym for the mind. And that the first dumbbells that we're going to pick up, <laughs> and I'm not making a pun with the word dumbbell, <laughs> But um, the, the first dump, the, the, <clears throat> the dumbbell that we're going to use in the beginning is the breath. To learn to slow down the breath, to take deeper breaths, and to have a little bit of sati or to remember that this is an in-breath, this is a deep in-breath. And then to remember this is a deep out-breath. And so we have sati both on the in-breath and on the out-breath. And so we develop sati as the skill. Can I keep coming back to the breath to make sure this is a long one and this is a short one? That's the very, very first practice that we put in. But we have to remember to do that because easily the mind will wander away. And when the mind wanders away, the natural thing for us to do is to scold ourselves. Oh no, hindrances have come back. Anapanasati is hard work. Oh, monkey mind, monkey mind, and all of these things that people will tell themselves, which is in fact not Anapanasati. It's lamenting over the loss of Anapanasati. It's not Anapanasati. Anapanasati is, ah, oh, there you go again. I saw you that time. Here you come again. Huh? Alright, and so we come back to this present moment, come back to the breath, take a deep breath, and enjoy the fact that we can catch the mind wandering away. Take delight in the fact that you can develop sati, that you can change, you can intentionally change. Now by doing this, we're actually talking about now the Eightfold Noble Path. In the first part of our talk, we talked about right view. Right view is actually this investigation to see is the mind got hindrances or not. But in order to do that, we have to apply that right view. In other words, we have to wake up or we have to remember, and that word is sati. We have to keep applying the mind. That's another way of talking about sati. Now, this word mindfulness that is commonly used is actually... If you think about mindfulness this way, it's a combination of both sati and investigation. You have to be mindful of what you're doing, as they say. 
but let's divide that out into two distinct things so that we're actually practicing them distinctly. That we're not practicing mindfulness as a joint venture, we're practicing right view and we're practicing right sati. And along with that, we're practicing right effort. Now, the right effort is to be easy on yourself, to be gentle on yourself, but to get her done. All right. So wrong view would be working too much. Expecting too much, hoping for too much. Or the other end of it is not working enough, not doing enough. So we have to find just that right amount of right effort. And that right effort then is an easy effort to never mind is the right effort. Never mind, start again. Never mind, come back to the breath and start again, over and over and over again. And we begin to get some success at doing that. But never mind, I can, in fact, throw out whatever I was thinking about and come back and start thinking about this present moment. That's the basic technique. That's the way to get started with Anapanasati. And we don't have to worry about stage one, two, three, four, five, or whatever's in some book someplace. That in fact, the biggest danger of a book, and I saw this with math books when I was in university, because I have a degree in mathematics, so I kind of know a little bit about math books. And one of the things that I know about a math book is, is that if you read chapter one, you may get it. And then you read chapter two and you're a little bit confused, but you're moving on. By, the by chapter three, you're a little bit lost. And by chapter four, you don't have a clue about what's going on. Why is that? Because when I was reading the book, I wasn't doing the exercises in the after at the end of the chapter. If you do the exercise in the math book, you really understand that chapter. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's why people will not get anything out of reading a Dhamma book. Is because they um, they'll, they'll read the Dhamma book in six weeks or five weeks. And it's going to take five or six months at best to do any of that stuff. And so we we get in advance. We get way ahead of ourselves as a, as a way of saying it. And one of the jobs of the teacher is to keep the student right where he is so that he can learn the lesson that he needs to learn right now so that he can progress on. And so uh, this is one of the dangers of, of Dhamma books is, is that people get ahead of themselves. Another one is, is that Dhamma books are organized. You've got to have a chapter one. You've got to have a chapter two. You've got to have a chapter three. That's just the way books are written. If you wrote it uh, the natural way, nobody would read it because it's. <laughs> you would give the, the story away at the beginning of the book and nobody's going to read the book. All right. And so this is the, the reason why uh, Dhamma books are dangerous. They don't have the, the, the value of. Uh, the next point is, is that the Dhamma book is not going to say, oh, you're on page 94 right now and you should be on page six. Mm -hmm. The book's not going to tell you that. It's just going to let you read right on uh, into page 100 and 300 or whatnot like that and 
we really need to keep reading page six over and over and over again. That's what a good Dharma teacher can do is it can keep bringing you back to page six. That's where we are. Is there, is there anything uh, that you would say, let's say I'm in a meditation session and I've come to the point where, you know, the breath is pretty stable on the, or the mind is relatively stable on the breath and I'm feeling good. Where do you kind of go from there? Do you just keep going? Just keep. Well, the first thing to do is congratulate yourself for it. Take a victory lap. Okay. Yeehaw! <laughs> do this. Yeah. All right. Now, what is that? That's actually step four of the Eightfold Noble Path is right attitude. That we start off in our life as very young children and that when the adults come around, we can see the adults are big and we're small. We can't do anything. We can't change our diaper. We can't even feed ourselves. Our hands don't work very well. And as we grow up, we start playing with things, but we still have all of these adults around telling us this, that, and the other thing. In fact, you have rule givers and rule keepers. Yeah. The rule givers are the champions. They're the bosses. They're the ones who are on top of things. And the rule keepers, they're the victims. They're the underdogs. They're the ones who are doing what they're told to do. They're the draft animals. We as children, as humans, start off as victims. And we maintain that position as victims. For instance, you're a victim of the job you have. You're a victim of your bosses. All right, and we came, and we, and we're a victim of the culture, and that we feel victimized, and we can re, and we can look for redress. Oh, you did me wrong, All right? And so we start asking for help, and part of that victim's position is I can't do it by myself. I need help. We're going to change that. We're going to change that attitude from a victim into the attitude of a lion. The attitude of a winner, the attitude of I can do this. So you ask that question, what do I do when I get the mind into a, um, a decent state? The answer is to congratulate yourself and then congratulate yourself again with words like I can do this. This is something that's marvelous. Very few human beings can do this, in fact, that there are fewer successful meditators than there are uh, gold medalist Olympian champions. There have been more Olympians with more gold medals. And if you got, if you were Olympian and you got a gold medal for say the hundred yard dash or something, wouldn't you feel pretty good? Yeah. You feel on top of the world. You feel like a champion, right? Yeah. So allow yourself to feel this championship because you're doing something that's even more difficult. To congratulate yourself, to become a winner, to have the right attitude, to become a lion with the idea, I can do this. And that needs to be practiced also. Well, guess what? When, when you're practicing, I can do this, and you're uh, thinking the thoughts of a winner, a champion, congratulating yourself, aren't you, in fact, beginning to manipulate your feelings? You're not Absolutely. feeling good. You're not being angry. You're feeling good. 
Mm-hmm. So we need to cultivate those feelings, the feelings of I can do this, the feelings of I can. So let me take another deep breath. And I feel so good. I feel relaxed. These are the kind of thoughts that we have. And can you sit there? How long can you sit in this relaxed, joyful feeling or do you lose it? If you lose it, then there's no more reason to sit and practice meditation because now what you're practicing is I've lost it or I don't feel that way or how can I get it again? And now we're back into a victim's position. Right? Let's not practice being a victim. You're already very good at that. You've been doing that victim thing for all of these years. Now we're actually going to practice becoming, um, with the right attitude, a champion. This is actually the word pity in the Pali. The pity is the feeling of a winner, the feeling of can do, the feeling of elation, the feeling of success, of joy, of aha, I could do it. And that's one of the jhana factors. So merely having the hindrances alone out of the mind is only now the, the, the platform or the stage. Let us say it like this, that <clears throat> let's use the example of a, the old West. They had a stagecoach with horses, right? And when the stagecoach has got a broken wheel and the horses are in the barn, that horse um, uh, stagecoach is pretty well hindered. But if you get the, the wheel fixed, you get the horses hooked up, now you're good to go. Mm-hmm. So you can think about that as the hindrances, as that keeps us from being able to even go anywhere. Now that we're free from the hindrances, where are we going to take this thing? Well, we're going to take it to Joyville. That's where we're going to go. <laughs> and when we arrive in Joyville, that's when we have the first jhana. So, um, the rapture and pleasure or the feeling of success and the feeling of satisfaction then um, come because we are ready, because we are no longer hindered. We've got the rig together. And so now we're going to develop the feelings of satisfaction. We're going to develop the feelings of joy and success. And so these are skills to be developed. And when we have these things together, we're actually talking about now Anapanasati. We've talked about step one. We've talked about uh, with relaxation, we're talking about step four. We're also talking about experiencing the body. We've talked about rapture and pleasure. And we've talked about gladdening the mind and investigating the mind. And we've talked about, uh, well, we'll get into it the higher stuff in the sense of everything's in flux and the idea of letting go. And this is all of Anapanasati. Every little step that I've just mentioned is a step of Anapanasati. Watching the breath, step one, relaxing, step four, uh, pity or uh, the feeling of the winner is step five. Step six is sukha, relaxation and satisfaction. Uh, step seven and eight, We'll do those a little bit later. Step nine is investigating the mind. What shape the mind is in. Step 10 is uh, gladdening the mind. So we can see that, in fact, we're practicing not just 
step one of Anapanasati, and then later someday we'll practice step two and later step three. But the Goenka technique normally stays with the four, four, the first four steps to Vanapanasati, but with, with the way that we teach through Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, it's all integrated and uh, natural. It all comes in natural <clears throat> ways. So yeah. this is the way to begin to practice, is to begin to practice that leads to that state of, I could do this. And someday you'll come to the point of it doesn't matter how obstructed the mind is. It doesn't matter what events are happening. I can handle that, too, with joy. No matter how obstructed or hindered it is, it doesn't matter if my mom dies. It doesn't matter if I get arrested by the cops. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm in the hospital. I can still come to the state that my mind is free and clear yeah i've i've uh ex- tried that i've tried to experiment it with like you know something happens and i'll sit down and, and do a little round of anapanasati and clear them try and clear the mind out or um you know something was happening just a second ago and i i just kind of said you know I've experienced this negative feeling before I can handle it, you know, like that kind of attitude. Right. The right attitude. I've done this before. That's confidence. Success over success over success builds confidence. I can do this. So then when we get sick, we can do it then. When we have a great loss, we can do it then. So and we I, and practice it seclusion because it's easy, but eventually mm-hmm. we'll have to learn to practice it out in the world where the world is intentionally making things hard for us. Can we do it then too? Yeah. And when, when you're just like, you know, going about your day when it's not so hard, but you know, you're answering emails, you got you see notifications come up. Just like doing that kind of thing where you're just like um being aware of how you feel and then uh you know kind of like aware of the breath being aware that um the mind can be free from hindrances that mm -hmm. i can feel good and so this is the way we'll talk more about this this is actually running pretty long and i've got another caller waiting so let's um finish this now because i think that we've gotten to the point that you know that you can practice this. This Anapanasati is actually fairly easy to, to, to see. And so you go practice that, practicing the joy, the practicing that I can do this over and over and over again. And then call me again. When are you going to call? Uh, how about this Sunday too soon? Um, I would recommend in the beginning uh, twice a week and then later once a week and maybe after that once every two weeks or something. But uh, once every uh, two or three, four days would be good. Sunday or Monday then. Okay. We'll see you. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. How do you say your name? Key or Sean? Key Sean. Keyshawn, okay, we'll do Keyshawn. You can call me Key. How about that? All right, Key. We'll see you. Now you've got the key. You've got the key to success. <laughs> you have the key. Yes.
All right, glad to meet you. This has been a good talk. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.